But uh, it's fun, so, uh, and they are good. And uh, I just appreciate them singing this morning. That was great. That's one of my favorite songs, too. That in El Paso. <laughs> Marty Robbins, yeah, he's, I know. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso. Okay. <laughs> Book of Zechariah. Oh, it's today going to be a fun day. Because I don't know hardly anything about Zechariah. This is makeup day. <laughs> the minor prophets, without a doubt, maybe outside the book of Job, the minor prophets, without a doubt, are probably classified as the hardest books in the Bible. And uh, I have a friend of mine that uh, probably is one of the greatest minds on the English Bible in all of the world. And I asked him when he, he wrote a he wrote a, a volume one on the minor prophets, which was a commentary book by book, verse by verse. And uh, really good series, about the only book in the world you'll find that talks about anything meaningful in the Minor Prophets. I remember asking him, I said, hey, brother, I said, I really enjoyed volume one. He said, when are you going to do volume two? And his answer was, as soon as I find out enough about them to write. They are tough books. And, uh, you know, uh, if you come through and you lay out the Minor Prophets, if you follow the systematic study that we teach you, about the Bible, uh, these books begin to open up and, and lay some things out. Sometime when you got a, a, some time, go to a Christian bookstore and just look through the section on commentaries and pick out three or four books. Don't buy them, of course, but just look at them and look at what they say about the minor prophets. It'll be absolutely meaningless dribble. Uh, they don't have a clue what's going on with the minor prophets. And the reason is, is because the minor prophets are dealing with uh, the second coming of Christ. The minor prophets are books that are all geared toward a specific concept. And uh, most of the people today do not believe the second coming of Christ anymore. So therefore, they're lost when they come to these books. So mostly what you get is just some kind of simplified uh, spiritual application or some kind of putting them in a structure by subject matter without ever telling you what the subject matter is. And I told you when we started last week, when we came through the book of uh, Haggai, I told you how that the last three books in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all figure uh, because, uh, are, are great books because they deal with the post-captivity of the nation of Israel. They deal with the time that the nation of Israel, after they come back from the 70 years captivity, you remember now that they go into captivity and then uh, they're gone for 70 years and then they come back. Most of the prophets are written either before they go into captivity or while they're in captivity. But these three books deal with them when they come back and they all focus on some great things. Remember last week in Haggai, we talked about how that the work on the temple had stopped. And we took last week and really focused on the great spiritual truth of, of what takes place in our lives when we stop building the temple of God. And the Bible talks about your body and my body being that temple. We made the spiritual application to it. The book of Zechariah picks up that story from that point on. Because by the time we open up the book of Zechariah, some 12 years have passed now. And for 12 years, the temple has stood unfinished. And this is the time when they were building their own houses and turning their attention to their own endeavors and leaving the house of God uh, basically bankrupt and unfinished. And we talked about all the spiritual applications of that last week, and we talked about, you know, the concept of building the temple of God. Zechariah 
gets his commission from God to motivate the nation of Israel for them to finish uh, that temple to build God's house. And when you study the book of Zechariah, his, his approach is very unique. Because as he approaches the nation of Israel, he doesn't do it like the other guys do. He doesn't come down and blast them because of the uh, sin they're involved in. He doesn't come down and, and just clobber them, you know, like all the other guys did and blast them for their ungodliness. But rather he begins to focus and remind them of the future importance of the unfinished temple. Now I don't have time this morning to get into the counseling side of this that the way that these writers approach the nation of Israel with their problems is a great study lesson for the way uh, we should deal with people and their problems. You don't deal with everybody the same way and the uniqueness of how the writers of the books themselves approach the material is uh, pretty good material so it's worth really studying and looking at to understand but we ain't got time to get into that today. But uh, for 12 years now it has stood unfinished. And Zechariah gets the commission uh, to motivate them. And he turns it to their future importance of why they must finish this temple. He says the temple must be built for there's a day coming when the Messiah is going to come. And he focuses toward the coming Messiah for Israel. And he's saying that you know if you know the Old Testament, the glory of the Messiah has to fill that temple. And he says that temple has, has to be built. And then he lays out one of the greatest concepts that I think that's probably taught for Israel, but certainly for us and goes hand in hand what, he taught, what we talked about last week. And he says, uh, he says that they have to remember that the blessings of God to Israel will only come by their obedience. And my, my, what a great concept and principle that is for your life and my life. Because it lays out that the blessings of God the blessings of God in our lives only come because of our obedience to what the Word of God says. And then he says this great statement, and uh, he says the people are not just building a building, but rather they're building their future. And when you grasp the concept of the millennial reign of Christ, all that God told Abraham back there, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, about how that all the nations of the earth in him would be blessed and he was going to bring out a promised seed whose seed would be like the stars of heaven and in that seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. When you understand that great concept, you realize what his approach is. He's telling them, hey look, you're looking at building this building just like you're looking at building your own house and you don't see the real impact here. That temple isn't just a building, it is Israel's future built around the millennial reign of Christ and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just in the practical application, the building of your spiritual body isn't about just going to church. It isn't about just, well, you know what, it's Sunday, we've always went to church, so we'll go to church. It's for your future too. It carries you through every aspect of your life, everything that you're going to come up against, all of the areas of your life you're going to have to deal with that are problematic and the things that are going to come into your life. And certainly it is based on building your future because someday the Bible says if we're obedient to the Word of God and do those things that God has for us to do, we will have our reward in the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ with Him. And in 520 B.C., after He motivates them, the work begins or resumes, I should say. And in 516, the temple is finished. Now, that little capsule of the book of Zechariah, you should have something like that 
about every book of the Bible. When somebody asks me a question on Thursday night or I'm working one-on-one with somebody in the Bible, and I haven't said this for a while, but don't forget, if you're here and you want to be taught the Bible or you have questions about the Bible, I'll sit down with anybody anytime, anywhere, and you can come over to my home and I'll help you out with the Word of God and we'll go through. Maybe you just have some questions about things and you want to focus on some things. Whatever. Whatever your need is, we're here for that need. But, you know, I never sit down and, and deal with somebody in the Bible and lay things out in the Word of God that, uh, that you don't see uh, when I open up my Bible. Uh, somewhere in the beginning of that book, I have an outline that I can look at instantaneously and know what that book is. There's no way you're going to remember it. Some things, just by the time you spend there and the time you study them, after a period of time, the books of the Bible all just become together and you can pretty much verbatim uh, lay them out what they are. But... You need to have, as I said many, many times, the best study Bible is your own Bible. And you're going to find that the way Zechariah approaches God's people, the nation of Israel, the book becomes one of the greatest detailed books in all the Bible doctrinally on the tribulation period, the millennial reign of Christ, and, and specifically the second coming of Christ. Zechariah and Malachi are probably the two greatest books in the Old Testament on the second coming of Christ. They both approach it from a different aspect. But the two together collectively really form a concept of of understanding how the second coming of Christ is. Now, as I said, the book of Zechariah is an incredible book. And it's probably, as it appears, one of the hardest books in the Bible. Because you get stuff in here that simply uh, really, uh, it just doesn't match up exactly with anything else in the Bible. And I know that up to this point, as we've been coming through the Minor Prophets, it's been one of those things where, you know, we've been, it's been inspirational, we've had doctrinal things that you can see, and it's kind of been a, a, an easy time to come through. Well, let me just say this to you before we go any farther here today. You better get a big gulp of air, because we're going to go down really deep today. We're going to go down into some things, and uh, uh, one of the great things about this book, as we study it today, is it's an example and a time for me to show you how that what I've taught you so far about the words, the key phrases, the different aspects that you approach the Bible with, how they really break down a tough book like this. Now, here's what I teach, and I believe this, and I believe this based on 35 years of my own life in the Word of God uh, coming through the Bible, and uh, over the years, uh, here's what I believe because this is what I've learned. I believe that if you take the systematic approach that God had built, has built into His own Bible, And there is an absolute approach that God has built into the Word of God that if you follow that systematic study and you learn the Bible this way, you will get a handle on the Word of God or what I commonly call a working knowledge of the Bible. You're going to find that over in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul told the church at Corinth that a church at Corinth matches up with many, many churches that we have in the Laodicean church period today. And he tells the church at Corinth that the pastors there, the leadership there, are to be stewards. And he's not talking about the stewardship of money, but rather the stewardship, in this case, of the mysteries of God. And when you start to come through and look at that, you'll find that you have just entered into God's systematic theology. Because once you study the seven mysteries, you're going to find out that there's seven resurrections. Then you're going to find out that there's seven distinct judgments. Then you're going to find out that there's a whole series of sevens. And we are told as God's people that we are to be stewards of those mysteries. 
And when you're not stewards of it, then people never grow up in the Word of God and never have the Word of God the way that they need to have it. Therefore, they get into all kinds of problems and never learn the Bible. Now, here's what I believe and here's what I teach. If you follow the systematic study in the Bible in time, you will understand and you will be able to figure out doctrinally, historically, and inspirationally where you're at in the Word of God 85% of the time. You'll be able to know that Bible any place. And I've said this, I've said this many, many times over the years and many, many times since we've started our church that your goal as a child of God, your goal as a child of God for your own personal relationship with God in that book should be so in tune with the Word of God that you could teach any book of the Bible in 30 seconds notice or less. You ought to be so prepared with that Bible that if you were out someplace and you were preaching, you know, and this happened to me one time. I was preaching one place and they had told me weeks before or months before I knew I was going there. They said, all right, we're going to, this is what we're going to do and this is what we want you to lay out. And I thought, that's fine. So I had my stuff all ready to go, you know, and uh, I was supposed to preach in the afternoon. It was like a Bible conference series and, uh, and I was standing there on the platform and they were singing the song and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the guy, pastor, came over to me and he said, brother, he said, we're really excited about hearing what you've got to say about the book of Job. And I kind of looked at him and I said, well, that's great. What, what was I supposed to say about the book of Job? When I got the letter six months ago, my assignment was something else. He looked at me and he said, brother, he said, you mean nobody ever called you? I said, no, not till this moment. And he said, well, you were supposed, my secretary was going to let you know four months ago that we changed your assignment and we people are came here today for you to teach verse by verse the book of Job. I said, okay. Went up to the pulpit and said, okay, if you have your Bible this morning, turn to the book of Job and taught the book of Job. Now that ought to be the goal of your life. And that ought to be what your goal is for the Word of God. You know, uh, a blind man taught me some real key things one time. And I went over to a blind man's house to pick him up one morning, and, uh, you know, he'd been blind all of his life. And uh, when I, you know, got pulled in the driveway, the garage door started coming up, so I figured that was my sign to come in. So I walked in the garage, walked up the steps, and here he was. He's still getting dressed. And uh, he was walking around that house, and he said, would you like some coffee? And I said, sure. I, I thought I'd pour it myself. He went over, got the coffee mug out of the thing, and poured the coffee up, gave it to me. He's in there. He's tying his tie. He put his socks on. Hey, I can see, and I, many a times I get two different colored socks. And I thought to myself, this first thing I thought to myself is, this guy's not really blind. He's just been sucking sympathy for everybody for the last 40 years. He's not really blind. I caught him, you know. And as I watched it, he went everywhere in that house, did everything, went down the stairs, turned the lights out, locked everything up, the whole nine yards. And then I, I suddenly realized what the thing was, and God taught me a great truth. Here's a guy that can't see, and yet he knows where everything at is in his house. Then I went home and I applied my thesis to a theory. And I went home, blind... I feel kind of ridiculous telling you this, but since I've already opened my mouth about this, I guess I might as well finish it. I went home and tested my theory. I, nobody was home. I blindfolded myself. And honestly, I was surprised how I could move around my house 
and do the things and function the things without seeing. And then it hit me. The reason why I could is because I have lived there all of my life. And since I have lived there all of my life, I just knew where everything was. I could visualize everything even though I couldn't see. And I learned a great lesson at that. That's exactly the same way we ought to be with the Word of God. We ought to live in that book so much that we can visualize where things are, that we can find things just like you find things in your home and you know where everything's at. And of course, if you take God's systematic study and lay it out that way, that's exactly in time where you'll get, and you'll understand the time, every book in the Bible and how to lay it out and Many of you, as we're going through the Bible and, and as we're coming through on Sunday, that's the, that's the basic foundation for doing it. If you start in time to get that material together and, and put it in there book by book and then, and then through the natural uh, time of teaching people the Bible, which is coming up in the next year, and working in the Bible and learning the Bible, it all becomes second nature to you. And I, I teach and I believe this, that, that if you can do that, you will know where you're at in the Bible 80-85% of the time without any problem. 10% that's left, or 15%, 10% that's left, 10% or 15% that's left, 10% of that you will be able to figure out the context of where you're at. And 5% of it, you may just have to throw your arms up in the air and say, you know what, I don't know what, any, what he's talking about here and nobody else does either. Obviously, if God wrote a book that everybody can understand it, then God wouldn't be any smarter than we are. There's a lot of things in that Bible that you don't figure out everything that he's talking about. And if there's any book in the Bible that goes along those lines, it's the book of Zechariah. And I said all that to say this. I'm going to show you today some really tough passages. And I'm going to show you how that you take these tough passages and by using just the common ordinary words that's on the back of that little bookmark I gave you, if you just follow the natural system of things that I've taught you throughout our time, you begin to see how this book that, that if you go to any Christian bookstore and try to find a book on it, they will just tell you the non-essentials of it and not be able to lay it out. You'll see how this book begins to tell you where you're at and what you're doing. And, uh, uh, you know, as you come down through this, and, uh, now the breakdown of this book is going to be come through in it chapter by chapter because this is much more detailed than anything else that we've had. So we're going to come through it that way, and I hope that, you know, you'll be able to see, if nothing else, how you do it. This is a great model for us who really want to learn the Bible, how to do it, how to look at a tough passage and then systematically break it down by the basic concepts that have already been defined for you other places in the Bible. This is where you begin to use the concepts and the words that we teach you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Ask your Father today to bless us as we come to your word. We thank you, Father, for all that you have for us. Show us, teach us today. Let us go down deep, Father, and see how that in a tough passage of the Word of God, the basic simple things of the Bible breaks down the complexity and makes it so easy to understand. And we'll thank you and praise you today. In Jesus' name, for the sake we ask it, amen. Well, the first thing we know about the book of Zechariah, that we have to get the context. That is the first rule of learning the Bible. What in the world is he talking about and who is he talking to? Well, we know he's talking to the nation of Israel. And I already told you that the context of this book, as the context of Malachi, really is most Old Testament books in the Bible, the context is the theme of the Bible, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that going in. 
So we start with this vague book already knowing the parameters. Now we already have learned that historically it actually happened. We already have learned that doctrinally, if it's fo focusing on the second coming of Christ, that inspirationally we know that Israel and the church parallel each other, so there's going to be a practical side to it that goes from there. We know that when Israel gets judged in the tribulation period, which they will, the parallel that is the church gets judged the judgment seat of Christ. We know that when Israel goes into the millennium, they go in and they get restored and they'll get a reward an inheritance, we know the parallel that is the church should get its inheritance and its reward. So we know how the parallels work. So now what we have to do is focus in on the specifics. And this is where it can get a little tough. Now I want to read for you out of chapter 1 here, and I want to read a story about a man among the myrtle trees. Now I haven't got a clue why this guy's down around the myrtle trees, but here's the story. Starting in verse 8. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him were there red horses speckled in white. And I said, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro, through the earth. Now we'll hold up there for a moment and, and we'll talk about it from this. Now here's a man among the myrtle trees. This verse, this passage, makes absolutely no sense. There isn't another place in the Bible where you can go where this will match up exactly. You can't run back someplace in Isaiah or Jeremiah and find this story broken down for you. You're faced with something that we know the context is the second coming of Christ, tribulation or millennium, somewhere in there. But now we're faced with what we've got here. And here's how you break this down. The first thing that comes to my mind is in verse 8. Some of you that know enough about the Bible, you want to be maybe stepping ahead of me here and looking at it and seeing what you come up with. Verse 8, the first thing I see there, it says, I saw by night. Now I know from that aspect that I'm doing one of two things. Because the night time, from a doctrinal standpoint, will always be the tribulation period. The night time, from a practical standpoint, will always be the church age. Now I know that what I'm dealing with here is the tribulation and not the church age. So whatever this night is he's talking about here, he's talking about something in the tribulation period. And then I see a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees, and then it talks about there are red horses speckled in white. So the first thing that comes into my mind as I read over there in Revelation chapter 6, in the first eight verses, about four riders on horses that show up. Now I know enough about my Bible to know that in Revelation chapter 6, we're starting the tribulation period, and we're seeing the coming of the Antichrist and all his associates, or all everything that comes along with him. Now, these horses don't match up exactly. But that's the only place you got to go. So what you must have here, or might have here, is you have additional information that isn't given in Revelation chapter 6 about the coming of the Antichrist. Now, if somebody says, now, Bob, how do you know that this is dealing with the Antichrist? The man among the myrtle trees here, uh, or one of them anyhow, is the Lord. And he's telling them this. But look at verse 10. Here's how I know it has something to do with the Bible. Look at down there. 
to and fro throughout the earth. You see that? Now that's a little key. Because in Job chapter 1 verse 7 and Job chapter 2 verse 2, the Bible says there was a day that the devil came in before the Lord and they had a little conversation. And the Lord said to the devil, Hey devil, where you been? How are you? Where you been? What have you been doing? He said, Oh, I've been walking up and down in the earth to and fro. Now, whenever you find that phrase to and fro, I'm going to tell you right now, you're dealing with something that's satanic. You're dealing with something that is dealing with the devil. And in chapter 1 down here, down down here through 8, 9, and 10, as he begins to lay this thing out, I don't understand it all, but I know enough about it because I can get the context. I can get the key words that narrow the context, and then I can run to another passage where I see a similar thing, find out that it's definitely got something to do with the devil. And then I realize that what I have here is probably additional information on the horse riders in Revelation chapter 6 giving me another dimension of it, showing me added info or insight, and this definitely has to do with the tribulation period and what God is doing uh, in Revelation chapter 6. So even though I can't figure the thing out exactly, I still can't tell you why the myrtle trees are there. I can't tell you what the Lord is doing down there other than He's showing you, but I get enough concept about it and enough places to go and enough key words that define my context that I know I'm dealing with something within the tribulation period that has to do with the coming of the Antichrist and representing those horses that represent death, represent uh, famine, represent all of the things that take place uh, when the Antichrist comes. Because in Revelation chapter 6, He's showing you a broad expanse of what the Antichrist is going to do. And I'm telling you, and you're going to see it again here a little bit later on when we get into Zechariah again, how you get more information on it. All right, let's look at chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, here's a strange chapter. Look at verse 6. Who's this remind you of? 2-6. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north. You know anybody that comes down from the north and goes, ho, ho? Who in Jeremiah chapter 10 has a tree that you put up in your house that you deck with halls with silver and gold? Who in Revelation chapter 11, when they cut off the two witnesses' heads, they make merry on a day that has to do with the birth of Baal, the sun god? Now that, just a little extra, you don't have to pay for that. I didn't even going to get into that. I just happened to jump out at me here. But what I want to go with chapter 2 verse 10. Now here's the context, it's clear. Verse 10 says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. There's a key word for you, second coming, wherever you find it. And shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of, the, out of his holy habitation. Well, verse 10, 11, 12, and 13 is the millennium. Christ is back. He's chosen Jerusalem again. He's risen up out of his holy habitation. He's reigning in Jerusalem. That's easy. Oh, now look at chapter 3, verse 1, 2, 3, 4. This is tough. Now, this is where it gets good. 3.1, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. 
Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he saith, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and to clothe thee in change, uh, with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair might upon his head. So they set a fair might upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord uh, protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt thou uh, judge my house, and thou shalt keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Now, that's a strange passage, man. I mean, what in the world is a guy, what is going on here? Where in the Bible do you find that a high priest named Joshua shows up before the Lord, Satan's standing over here to resist him, and they go back and forth, and sermonly Joshua then gets a change of garment, gets a, gets a admonition from the Lord to follow his word, and, I mean, where do you find it? You don't find it anywhere. And if you take the average commentary, that guy will just jump right over that. He doesn't know any more to do with it, and uh, he won't know what to do with it. But you know what? If you find, now, this is one of these places that you just follow the systematic formula. Joshua, the high priest, he has to represent the nation of Israel. He has to. And when you look down through here, you find all the components. I know the Bible says there's a day coming in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, when the Bible says, I saw a great white throne, and him the, and a great white throne, and him that sat on it, the Bible says, from whose face the heaven and earth flee away, and there was found no place for them. Then it says this, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And whosoever was found written in the books was cast into the lake of fire. How many times we have read that and wondered what in the world that's talking about. Now, if you've been coming on Thursday nights, you know what that's talking about because we have laid that stuff out uh, a couple of times and you get a handle on it. We've even talked about it on Sunday morning. But the bottom line is this. Where do you go in the Bible to find out what's taking place in Revelation chapter 20? I'll tell you where you go. You go right to Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua is representing the nation of Israel. He's standing before somebody here because it keeps saying there, uh, verse 4, and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him. Somebody's standing before God. And this is a picture of what's taking place in, Re in Revelation chapter 20 where somebody is showing up at the great white throne judgment. Somebody is saying and playing the prosecuting attorney to try to destroy them, the devil. And the Lord Jesus Christ is standing up for them as the as his defense counsel. And what is taking place here is their names are found in the book of life. They get a change of garments. God gives them a charge to obey his word. And just like in Revelation chapter 20, the next chapter is 21. The next chapter is 22. They go into God's kingdom in eternity. That's exactly what you've got here. A picture of the second coming of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, and the eternity of Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. And the nation of Israel, typified by Joshua the priest, coming up before the Lord, and somebody examining him to find out if he's worthy to go in. And he goes in. Now keep in mind now, this has nothing to do with you and me as Christians. This is dealing with the nation of Israel. 
This is that stuff that you don't get in all the prophetical books that are out there who don't know anything about prophecy. This is dealing with the nation of Israel when they have to stand before God and give an account to find out if their names are written in the book of life. Now, every time you start talking like this, you know, you'll find Christians who kind of get confused. Don't get confused. There's two books. My book is not written in the book of life. That's for Israel. There's two books in the Bible. The second book is the Lamb's book of life. That's the book that I was written in when I got saved. You don't find anybody open the Lamb's book of life at Revelation chapter 20. When the moment I got saved, I'm in. Brother, I'm as good as seated in heavenly places right now. But Israel's another whole story. Now what you got in Zechariah chapter 3, doctrinally here, is probably a picture of what takes place with the nation of Israel when they come before God at the great white throne judgment. We know the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 and 13 that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He not only accuses the nation of Israel now, he not only accused Job uh, before God in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, when Job is a picture of the nation of Israel, he shows up at the great white throne judgment to judge and accuse them there. But they overcome him. That's why you find the word overcome in the book of Revelation, not only for you and for me, because the day you got saved, you overcame. Israel's going to overcome in that day when their name is found in the book of life. Now, what you got there in Joshua chapter 3? It's an incredible picture of detail of what goes on at that particular point in time. And I don't expect you all to understand that, and that's not my goal today. I'm laying this thing out showing you how you can figure the things out. We can discuss this on Thursday night or one-on-one anytime you want to to help break it down. I'm showing you how to take a tough book and find out where you're at and what's going on. I'll show you something. Look at verse 8. Now, this is a strange thing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. Somebody's sitting around here. For they are men wondered at. Behold, I bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When you start to come through the Bible, you're going to find that term, the branch, four times. You're going to find it in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. You're going to find it again in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. You're going to find it in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, where we're at. And you're going to find it again in Zechariah 6, verse 12. And you're going to find in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where you have four Gospels. These four branches in these four books match up to the four Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the way Christ is portrayed. In the Gospel of John, you'll find that Christ is portrayed as the Son of God. So in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, that branch is portrayed as the Son of God. In Matthew, you're going to find Christ portrayed as the king. So in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, it's going to say the branch, the king. In Mark, he's portrayed as a servant. Well, let's look at Zechariah chapter 3. We're already here. What does it say? And I bring forth my what? Servant, the branch. Matches Mark. And in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, you'll find that Luke... He's portrayed as the Son of Man, and in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, there it is, the Son of Man. Four concepts of the branch that match the four concepts of Christ typified by what each gospel represents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which presents Christ a different way. Now, that's the systematic way of learning the Bible. You know what the scholars' approach is to it? 
They see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't believe the Bible. They could care less about the Bible. So what do they do? They see Matthew doesn't match Mark. Mark doesn't match John. So they say, you see there? That's what the problem with the Bible. You see? I tell you a story. You tell somebody else the story. You tell him the story. You tell him the story. You tell her the story. By the time it goes around to everybody and it comes back to Rose over here, the story doesn't even match what it originally said. Rose has lied through her teeth of what the story said. And that's what they say about the Bible. The Bible has been handed down through campfire and campfire from father to father, and it got added and it got embellished, and here you are, and that's why they say Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John don't match up. They say they don't match up because the Bible is not a reliable book. It was just passed down. Men changed things. They left things out. That's why Matthew says there, tells the story and says there's two men. Mark will tell the same story and only list one man. Then you go over to John and read the same story. You find out there was three men. And then it'll say from that, now you see, the Bible's unreliable. And because the Bible's unreliable, because he told one, he didn't mention any, or he said two, he said one, he says three. See how unreliable it is? So, if you really want to learn truth, come to me. Well, I'll go down to the Greek, I'll go down to the Hebrew, and I'll tell you what it really means. You don't need that. No, no, no. All you need to know is God's systematic study of the Bible. Matthew representing as the king. So the emphasis in Matthew is going to be he's the king to Israel. Mark represents the fact that he's a servant. Luke represents the fact that he's a son of man. You know in Mark or in Matthew, you'll find a genealogy going back the kingly line going back to in Christ's line. You know why? He's he's the king. In Luke, you'll find his genealogy going back through his human line. You know why? Because he's the son of man or son of man. In Mark, you won't find any genealogy. You know why? Because he's a servant, and a servant has no genealogy. And in, and in, and in John, it, where's the genealogy go in John? Well, it goes to the kingly line in Matthew. There isn't anything in Mark. It goes to the Son of Man in Luke. But in John, he's the Son of God, so it goes back to in the beginning. Can't beat it. So when they don't line up exactly, that's because the book isn't designed to line up. Four different accounts of the first coming of Christ. That's why you got four different accounts of the second coming of Christ in Revelation. Bible's consistent. And that's why you got four branches throughout the Old Testament, and each one of them match up to one of the Gospels because God is trying to show you something through His own systematic study. It's incredible. It's incredible. Now, I'm just going to give you some hope here. Because I know some of you struggle with the Bible. Let me give you a little hope. If an idiot stick, ding-dong, cloud-brain, banana-head like myself can get that, you can get it. Don't walk around here thinking, well, you know, that's Bob, you know, because he... Hey, let me tell you something. I lose my car keys five times a day. I forget everything. I don't know where anything's at. I'm telling you, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with God will take any idiot in this world who is just dumb enough to believe that book is God's Word and He'll give it to him. It's as simple as that. But the key is the systematic study that God designed in His Bible. I've used this illustration before, but it's time to use it again. St. Louis is right down the road here, 240 miles. Now, if we decide we're all going to go to St. Louis, we can, we've got two ways to go. We can get on I-70 and go 
uh, east and be there in two and a half hours. We can get I-70 and go west. Yeah, we can go all the way west, go all the way to the coast of California, get on a ship, go to Tokyo, go all the way across Asia Minor, go all the way across there, come back around, hit the east coast, drive back from that way. Two ways to get there. One will take you two and a half hours, three hours at the most, if you stop and get some of the little White Castle thing, because you can eat about 20 of those. <laughs> the other way will take you forever. And you know what? Same way with the Bible. You can get there in a short time. You can spend the rest of your life and never figure it out. It's up to you. You can either take God's route or you can take man's route. That's as simple as it's not hard. It's hard. It's not hard. It's not hard. All right, now we come to chapter 4. Chapter 4, we got the story of two olive trees. And this is a great story. Now that we know where we're at now, we're right on, we're on target now. <clears throat> we can figure this out. I mean, nobody else can, but we can. It's so easy here. Look at 4.3. And the two olive trees by it. Oh, I'll start up in verse, uh, just start 4.1. And the angel that talked with me came again and, 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 and waked me as a man that is waketh out of his sleep. And said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel talked with me and answered, and he said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. We talked about him last week, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? And thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto thee. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. Talk about the temple. Uh, and also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? That's an interesting study. Uh, for they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel, and those seven, and they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. And answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees? upon the right side of the candlestick, and upon the left side. See how confusing it's getting? i got a headache already. Watch how easy this becomes. And I answered and said these unto him, What be these two olive branches, where through the golden pipes, empty of the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then, he, then said he, Here comes the key. These are the two anointed ones, which stand by the Lord, of the whole earth. Now, that's a very confusing passage, unless you use your Bible. Because I know the context now, we've already defined it. Either tribulation, millennium, or second coming of Christ. In this case, it's the tribulation period. we got two men here, called golden candlesticks, who are called two witnesses. Ah, we know who they are now, they're Jehovah Witnesses. This is where they start. One of his name is Rutherford, and the other name is Russell. No, 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 no. Two witnesses. The Bible gives you a key. They stand before the Lord of the whole world. Now, you start studying the book of Revelation. You'll find the book of Revelation. You'll find in Revelation chapter 11, you'll find that two men show up. And the Bible calls them two witnesses. 
These two witnesses show up. One of them is Moses, one of them is Elijah. One of them represents the law, the other one represents the prophets. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. In the tribulation period, rapture takes place, we're gone. Tribulation period starts, first three and a half years, tribulation period runs seven years, first three and a half years, everything is great. Antichrist makes a covenant with the Jews, the Iraqi elections go great, everybody's happy, everybody's fine, everybody pulls it off, everybody's great, and then suddenly, three and a half years into it, the Antichrist breaks the covenant, we're going to see it here, it's taught in Zechariah, we're not there yet, quite yet, he breaks the covenant of the nation of Israel. And he attacks the Jew. The Jew is told, Matthew chapter 24, run into the wilderness. God's got a place prepared for you. He runs into the wilderness. He's out there in the wilderness just like he was back there in the book of Exodus. And then Moses sends them two men, one representing the law, one representing the prophet, the two greatest leaders they ever have, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah shows up. They're found in Revelation chapter 11. They do the same miracles that they did. Turn the water to blood, call down fire from heaven. They both did that. They both, in fact, you're going to find that Moses and Elijah and Christ are so similar. I mean, when you go back through your Bible, they all meet on mountains together. They all fast, all three of them, 40 days. They all three are sent to Israel. They all crossed water miraculously. They all destroy their enemies with fire. They all have power over the natural elements. All three are called anointed. All three face a type of a man in their ministries, which is the type of the Antichrist. And all three are transformed in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is a picture of the second coming of Christ. And how in the world? How in the world? It may, how in the world? You know what? In Matthew chapter 7, Peter, James, and John are standing down there, and they're watching. And now, let me explain the Mount of Transfiguration. Before Christ was crucified... Before he received any glory from God, God allowed him to go beyond the cross and stand, stand on a mount, and the Bible says that he was transfigured before them. And that transfigure means that he shines like the sun. It's a picture of the second coming of Christ. And you get Peter, James, and John down there, and when they saw him transfigured before them, and his hair was white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, just like in Revelation chapter 1, and they saw all the glory of God, I mean, their mouth dropped down that big, and they're standing there, and they suddenly represent, they suddenly know what's going on. And they say, should we make three tabernacles? Because they know that this is the picture of the second coming of Christ, and they know he comes in the Feast of Tabernacles. They know their Bible. And then... One of them says, and should we make three tabernacles, Lord, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah? How in the world did they know? Oh, I know. I know how they did it. They're down there, and they see that, and somebody says, who's those other two guys? He says, I don't know. Let me get my Bible out here. I got a King James Bible. Okay, see one over there. That's Moses. That's Elijah. No. That's not how it went. You see, we're under the delusion that they didn't know the Bible. Those Old Testament Jews knew the Bible. And they knew all through the Bible. They knew. The last book in the Bible, Malachi, says that Moses and Elijah are coming back with the Lord. They knew that. And they knew their Bible. 
So Moses and Elijah are the only two men in the history of the world that stand by the Lord of the whole earth, Matthew chapter 17. And they are the two candlesticks. They are the two witnesses. And they're the only two men in the Bible with the Lord who are called anointed in that sense. And it's it's an incredible thing. And on top of that, Moses and Elijah end their ministries and end their life right where Christ crossed Jordan on the east side and was baptized. Everything fits right down the line. So when you get into chapter 4, verses 3 and 14, you're dealing with the story of two olive trees, who's Moses and Elijah. They're standing on either side of the candlestick, the Lord, and they're called the two anointed ones, and they lead the nation of Israel down through the tribulation period. And that's what you got in Zechariah chapter 4. I mean, it's not that hard. You want a hard one? Chapter 5. Pick it up in verse 7. And behold, there was lifted up a talon of lead. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of an ephah. Now ephah is like a bushel basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah and cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Then lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. For they had the wings like a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Now, here we are. Now, what are we going to do with that one? Wing women? Well, I know you're all angels this morning, but I'm not talking about that. I mean, here's a, here's, a, here's a woman that's sitting in a bushel basket in the midst of an ephah. And then two other women have wings. Oh, man, what are we going to do with this? What's this all about? Well, here again, let's just stick with our Bible. We know the context here. Context is the tribulation, millennium, second coming. We know that. Let's just see what we got here. Just don't, just don't panic. I mean, I know there's a tendency to go off there, you know. I heard an old, I used to preach in black churches, and they, I always loved, I love black people, and I love black churches. And plus, I'm the greatest preacher ever here in life. And I, was in a, I, I won a boy to Christ 40 years ago when I was in Ohio working at a factory. And that old black boy got saved. God called him to preach, and last I heard of him, he was preaching that uh, I'm church in Alliance, Ohio. In fact, right before I came to Kansas City, he had me down and I preached for him. It was a great time. I mean, they were amen and well and all over the place. You know, it was, it was I mean, that's what they do. They go, well, you know. Well, down there, preach it, white man, preach it. You know, I mean, I, I can get into it. <laughs> I know the first time old John preached. John Tony was his name. He's back there and he's in Revelation. And he was preaching on Adam and Eve. And he was preaching on Adam and Eve, and he said, Now I want to tell you, he says, the Bible says that Eve, God gave, Eve, God gave Adam a woman, and her name was Eve. And he turned his page of his Bible to finish the thing, and when he did, he got four or five pages stuck together, and he got over in Genesis 6. And he looked down there, and he said, And God brought the woman down to Adam, and he turned the page, and said, She was 104 score wide and 300 deep, or something like that, you know. <laughs> well, we don't want to go there yet with this. Just stick with what we got. We don't need our pages to stick together to figure this out. 
Look at what you got. Chapter 5. How about verse 7? And behold, there was lifted up a talon of lead. Now this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the Eve. All right, first thing we know about it, just categorize it. It's a, we got a woman here. Now look at verse 8. And he said, this is wickedness. Now he didn't say the woman is wicked. This woman is the personification of wickedness. He said there's a woman, and then it says in verse 8, this is wickedness. And he cast it in the midst of an ephah, and he cast the weight lead upon the mouth thereof. Then lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women with wind in their wing. Now I know that every picture you've ever seen of angels in the Bible, you'll always see them, you know, and they always, angels always got wings. Now that's a Roman Catholic concept. Angels don't have wings. The only thing that has, and this is our key, the only thing that has wings in the Bible is demons. And you find that in, Ecclesi- uh, find that in the book of Ecclesiastes. And when you come down through Ecclesiastes down through here, and you'll find that there in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 20, you got a little story. And the story is, you're told, not to curse the king in your bedchamber, because birds of the air will tell the matter. Now what you've got there is this. That's a tribulation context. And that warning is for somebody in the tribulation who in their bedroom with their wife or their husband or whoever is talking about the Antichrist in a negative fashion and somebody with wings like a bird going back and informing and telling the Antichrist, what somebody's saying. That's how he is going to operate such a world-class system of manipulation and control. He's going to have secret agents in every part of everything that's going to hear everything anybody says that's left. And this is where you're, when you couldn't figure out growing up how your mother figured things out, what would she say? She'd just quote out of the Bible and say, a little birdie told me. Your mother got out of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. She didn't even figure it out. All those sayings come out of the Bible that you hear. I mean, somebody said, well, you can't keep a good man down. That's the rapture. When that day comes, if you have any goodness at all, it's because of the goodness of God. You won't keep you down. You're gone. You're gone. The Bible says, or people say, birds of a feather flock together. It's in the Bible. It all goes in the Bible. And all of those things come out of the Word of God. And here in in Uh, Zechariah chapter 5 you've got some woman who's connected with women with wind in her wings and we already know from the Bible that there's only and I'll tell you what we ain't done yet we can't get out of this look down verse 11 let's get the rest of it here verse 11 says they're going to build a house in the land of Shinar you know what Shinar is that's Babylon see how easy this becomes we got a woman who is personification of wickedness Got to be the great horror of Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Got to be the horror of Proverbs chapter 7, Proverbs chapter 5, where she's defined as wickedness without any problem at all. Then we got two other women that have wings. Got to be connected with Ecclesiastes chapter 10, something in the tribulation period. And all this is taking place in a place called Babylon. So what you have here by just taking the simple concepts of the Word of God is you have a laid out here that shows you something in the tribulation period 
That has to do with the great whore, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. That has to do with the demon spirits that are connected with her. Maybe the ten confederated nations. Maybe the three uh, uh, false parts of the Trinity, uh, which are back there. The beast, the false prophet, and the uh, Antichrist. You don't know how to put all that together. But what you've got is something in the tribulation period that is the personification of wickedness. That is a woman that is in Babylon, and the devil's connected with it. Then in chapter 6, you got four beasts called the four spirits of heaven in verse 5. And without getting into this to a great degree here, for the sake of time, I'll tell you, this is, goes along with Revelation chapter 6 again. Because in Revelation chapter 6, you have the uh, four angels, or in chapter 7 verse 1, you have the four angels from the four corners of the earth. And all of this stuff in chapter 6 and chapter 3 going back to Revelation chapter 6, very frankly, and I can't prove this, but when you get all the men together, here's what I do know. I know that when the Antichrist shows up in Revelation chapter 6, he brings with him death, he brings with him with famine, he brings him with war, he brings all of these things. And I know that Zechariah chapter 6 and Zechariah chapter 3, where we were a little while ago, fit into that somehow. And here's what I know. When he, you see all these things, one place it's horses, then it's beasts with chariots, then it's this and it's that. Let me tell you this. I don't know how it all collectively goes together, but I do know this. I know when the Antichrist comes at some time in the tribulation period, I know that in Revelation chapter 9, your worst nightmares show up. Out of the bottomless pit, out of the pit of hell, come the beasts. And the Bible describes them as a composite beast of the most grotesque, ugly things that you ever saw in your life. And you know what? The Bible says that men, they, 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 they torment men. And I don't, I, the Bible gives a description of them, but how in the world do you take that and then get some? All I know is this, they're the most grotesque, ugly things out of the pit of hell. That The Bible says that the hell opens up, the bottomless pit opens up, and all these things come up. Probably in 6, 3, and Revelation 6, you've got a composite that lays the whole thing out that shows you how that process is going to be. I know this. I know the Bible says that during that time men want to die and they can't die. I also know this. I know every horror movie that we've ever seen in our lives, the cheap budget ones anyhow, they all follow the same concept. Did you ever see it? You ever see it how that, uh, that, uh, uh, that they, they, they live for, I mean, they live forever and ever and ever and ever and they keep coming, that's why they keep coming back. Freddy Krueger 1, Freddy Krueger 2, Jason 1, 2, and 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, Night of Mary and Elm Street 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You know why? Because they never die. Where do they get that concept from? I'll tell you why. Because there's coming a period of time on earth when Freddy Krueger's going to show up at your house. So is the Terror and stream. So is every other horror movie you ever saw. And those things are going to show up and they're going to come down there and they're going to torment men. Men want to die. They can't die. They can't be killed. The beast can't be killed. And it's just like Friday night at the Fright Night all over the place except that takes place right on this earth in the tribulation period. And when those unsaved men write those movie scripts, when those unsaved men put those concept together they only got one original source they can work with and it comes out of the Bible and because they're demon possessed and because they're unsaved men they get the other side of it so everybody out there goes to the movie gets scared out of their wits and comes out saying wow I'm glad that's just a movie yeah it is now friend but wait till the rapture takes place wait till Freddy comes a calling oh yeah it all comes out of that book 
Everything you ever saw in your life has its basis right there. I mean, you want to funny Star Wars, Alien 1, 2, and 3, and put all that stuff together, and Lord of the Rings, you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You want to put all the horror movies together, The Thing, the thing and Freddy Krueger, and Alistair, you go to Revelation chapter 11 and 12. It all fits into your Bible someplace. And man takes it and tries to make it like it isn't real, so people won't take the Bible seriously. That they'll equate the horror in the Bible just like a movie that you go, and when you go home, you don't have to worry about it. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Save some time here. They all deal with the tribulation period. Key words. Chapter 8, verse 23, those days. Chapter 10, verse 1, form in a latter rain. Chapter 10, verse 5, battle of Armageddon. All things that I've given you before. No time to spend on that. Get you the meat stuff here. Chapter 11 and 12. Oh, here we go. 11 and 12. Greatest chapter in the Old Testament on the Antichrist. I mean, it's a great chapter. Now, I've got to read this one for you. Let's pick it up in chapter 11, verse 7. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Beauty and bands are defined in the Bible for you. We don't have time to do it right now, uh, but they have to do with the nation of Israel. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month. And my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Uh, there's an indication that might be, well, never mind. Then said I, I will not feed you. If I start on that, we'll be here till tomorrow. Then said I, I will not feed you. That dieth, let it die, and that is to be cut off. Let it be cut off, and let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant that I had made with all the people, nation of Israel. Now, you know what you got up to that point? That's what I just told you a little while ago. This is the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation period, breaking the covenant that he made with the nation of Israel in the first three and a half years. Now, watch this. Watch this. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, If ye think me good, give me my price, and I'm not forbear. So they weighed my price, watch it, 30 pieces of silver. Wow, 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 wow. Exactly what Christ is sold out to by Judas. Who is the Antichrist? Revelation chapter 12, John, book of John. Only two men called the son of perdition in the Bible, is Judas and the Antichrist. And how one got where and where got one, is the mystery of Revelation chapter 17 and 18, which is solvable in a King James 1611 authorized version. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Verse 14. Then I cut asunder my other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Watch this. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto, here he comes, here he comes. I'm telling you, first three and a half years, he makes a covenant, then he breaks the band. God gave you the key with the 30 pieces of silver. Now here he comes. Don't miss it. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. Here he comes. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, and I Christ, but shall not visit those that be cut off, neither seek the young one, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed them that stand still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Look at verse 17. Woe to thee, Idle shepherd. Idle as in false god. 
Watch it very carefully. You know what your NIV says instead of idle? Woe unto the worthless shepherd. Oh, that's going to help you in your cross-reference. You see, I got an NIV. Worthless shepherd. Mm, there's a little note here to study the word worthless. Go back here to the define of word for worthless. Your NIV is worthless compared with previous verse. Got it now. Got it. Got it. Boy, I love them study Bibles. He's the idle shepherd. He's the idle shepherd. Idle. 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 I-D-O-L. Because he causes the world to worship him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 31. All this goes into Daniel chapter 7. All this fits back into that thing. And it has to do with the breaking of the covenant of Israel. Now look at this. Woe unto the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm, bad arm, upon his right eye, bad eye. And his arm shall be clean, dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Oh, he gets a head wound that affects his arm. Oh, you'll never bid it up, man. You know, you go down through history in the church age. There's been six men or five men who have been perfect types to the Antichrist. There's 18 in the Old Testament. There's five from the church age on. You know who the greatest type of the Antichrist was? In the, uh, it was number five. Number five was Adolf Hitler. Perfect type. Perfect type. If you go back there and you look at those old archive footages, you know, when the Nazi National Socialist Party started out, they didn't have a lot of members, so they all hyped up their numbers. I saw a picture of Adolf Hitler's membership card. You know what the number on his card was? 555. You know who 444 was? It was Kaiser Wilhelm. You know who 333 was? You can walk it right back in history. He was 555. You know why? That was in 1945, because the next one's going to be 666. You know who coming after 666? 777, man. In the July 11th plot of 1944, Adolf Hitler down at Wolf Lair got blowed up and almost killed. Ever see pictures after him? He's got a head wound and the rest of his life he had a bad right arm. Oh. O to B I B L E. That's the book. Oh, get the new look from the old book. I don't need that stuff, man. I'll just tell you what, you got a Bible, friend. You've got everything you need. If you get God's systematic theology, verse 17 says he's got a bad arm and a bad right eye. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 21. Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 25. Job chapter 38, 15. 1 Kings 13, 4. Psalm chapter 10, verse 15. Psalm chapter 37, 17. And 40 other places lay that out. Greatest chapter in the Old Testament on the Antichrist that fits in with everything else. And you lose the whole thing by changing the word idle to worthless. Chapter 13. Oh, we ain't got time to get into all this either because I've got one more chapter we're going to spend a little time on. It's, it brings us to the end. Chapter 13, second coming of Christ, the millennium. Verse 1 says, in that day a fountain opened up in the house of David. Yes, sir, that's the millennium. And that's that water that comes out of the holy oblation, runs down into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea becomes alive and the fish come back alive. The desert blooms like a robe. It runs over into the Mediterranean Sea. And wherever it goes, it brings life. Picture of the Holy Spirit of God. Then verse 6, a great study there we don't have time to get into on. It says, wounded in the house of my friend. Boy, what a great concept talking about Christ wounded in the house of the nation of Israel, his friends. 
But we ain't got time to get into that. But up to this point, everything so far has been the Jew and the tribulation. We've broken it down. We've used the format of the scriptures to lay it out, the details of the trib, and it all brings us up to Zechariah chapter 14, the greatest chapter in the second coming of Christ in the Old Testament. I'm telling you. Let me read it for you. 14.1, Behold the day of the Lord, second coming, cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem, he does, battle of Armageddon, to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. That's Joshua chapter 10, for those of you that are covering it. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, on the east. And on the Mount of Olives shall clave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountain shall reach unto Azel. Yea, he shall flee as he fled from before the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord God of, shall come and Saint, look, yes, and the Lord God shall come and all the saints with him, and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known unto the Lord, not day or night, but it shall come to pass that at evening it shall be light, battle of the second coming of Christ. It shall be in that day that living water shall go out of Jerusalem, half toward the former sea and half toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter it shall be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Sorry, Allah. Sorry. Backseat. Can't help you. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, Buddha. Hit the road. Confucius, change your name to confusion because it ain't going to work. It's all gone. Finished. Over with. Ain't going to happen. See you later. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord shall be king over the earth. Revelation chapter 19 says he's crowned king of kings. And the Lord, Lord, in that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. One. Zechariah chapter 14 brings us to an end of a great journey through the Bible, if you're a Bible student. It started in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. and winds up in Zechariah chapter 14 and Joshua chapter 5. The only two places in your Bible where somebody is told to take the shoes off their feet because the ground they stand on is holy. One place is where Moses met God on Mount Sinai over there in Exodus chapter 3. The other place is where, uh, where Joshua met the Lord over there in Joshua chapter 5, right on the Mount of Olives. Both of them are told to take the shoes off their feet. You know why? Because point A and point B is the route of the second coming of Christ that is laid out through the Word of God for you all the way through the Bible. It starts in Exodus chapter 3 verse 5 and it ends in Zechariah chapter 14 and Joshua chapter 5 verse 15. It starts in chapter 3 on Mount Sinai where Moses met God. And from that point on, Moses and the nation of Israel go on a journey. That journey is recorded to you in the Old Testament step by step, but nothing in the recording of that journey matches up to the real journey. That journey is not only the route of the nation of Israel, it is the route of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus Christ. And along that journey, through the wilderness journey, and all the nations, you have a picture of exactly what's going to take place. And I'm going to walk you through it. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, it starts at Mount Sinai. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 1 through 2, he says this, The Lord comes from Sinai and rose up from Seir with 10,000 of his saints. The Bible says a fiery law came from his right hand and he shined forth from Mount Paran. Well, that sounds nice, but that just didn't happen 
when that back there in the Old Testament. Oh, they came from Sinai, and they rose up from Seir, but he didn't shine anywhere. He gave them a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. There was no, he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, but there wasn't any fiery law came from his hand. Oh, but there will be at the second coming, because that's the same route. Then you jump over to Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 6. They ask the question, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness? See that thing? From Sinai to Seir, coming out of the wilderness. Bible says, Pillars of smoke. Valiant men, valiant of Israel, with swords in their hand, experts at war. Psalm 68 takes it a little bit farther. Let God arise. Well, he didn't rise back in the Old Testament. He was talking to the people through Moses. What do you mean, let God arise? Let his enemies be scattered. Let the wicked perish at the presence of God. There was no presence of God in the Old Testament. It was Moses. O oh God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness from Sinai. Well, somebody says, well, that's just talking about when he let them out. Really? Well, it says here that the earth shook and the heavens dropped. Didn't happen back in, back in Exodus, but it'll happen at the second coming of Christ. Oh, yeah, you come down from Mount Sinai. Then you come down through Sinai in the wilderness. Then you come out of the wilderness. Then you come down through the, uh, the, the Paran and right down through the wilderness. And then in Judges chapter 5, here's another one. He says the Lord marches from Seir to Edom. And he says that the earth trembled. No, it didn't. The heaven dropped. You know what you got in Judges chapter 5? In Judges chapter 5, you got Deborah, who's singing a song in victory because the man Sisera, who has been an enemy of Israel, has just been killed. And when she's singing this song, she's singing about four or five stanzas of it in Joshua chapter 5. And there isn't anything that lines up to the battle. Because she starts talking about, she starts talking about, she starts talking about the great victory that God gave in Seir and God gave in Edom. Hey, Seir and Edom were 40 miles from where this battle took place. But you know who Sisera is, don't you? He's one of the 18 types of Antichrist in the Old Testament. You know how he died, don't you? Head wound. Oh, yeah. This song of victory back here is a prophetic song. It's talking about God, the Lord, marching from Seir to Edom and the earth trembling and the heavens dropped. Then Isaiah 63, it says, Who is this that cometh from Edom? Now we're moving out of Edom with dyed garments from Boaz. Verse 9 says, Day of vengeance. It talks about the great winepress of God. This is Revelation chapter 19 when he comes back and he tramples the Antichrist armies in the valley of Armageddon like grapes in a wine vat. Then in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, it says, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And it says, His brightness as the light. Before Him go pestilence, burning coals at His feet. Didn't happen in the Old Testament. Happened at the second coming of Christ. You know what you got? You got a picture of when Christ comes back, He comes to Mount Sinai where He met Moses and told Him to take His shoes off of His feet. And then He comes out of the wilderness, up Paran, up through Seir, up through Edom, right up the King's Highway, right up the east side to the Promised Land, right across Jordan, and right into that thing. Zechariah chapter 14 brings me to Mount of Olives. And man, you know what you got? You got the route of the second coming of Christ when Christ comes back. Listen to me. One of these days, one of these days, the rapture is going to take place. Tribulation is going to start. We're going to go through, they're going to go through seven years. Not us. They're going to go through seven years. And then the Lord's day is going to come the day that God has prophesied over 500 times in the Old Testament, called the day of the Lord, that day. And, bro, I'll tell you what, 
When he gets off that throne, he's going to leave that throne. And he's going to come down from the third heaven. He's going to come down through those galaxies and those nebulas and the Milky Way and the star clusters and through the solar system from the north, Psalm chapter 76, to Mount Sinai, right where he met Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He's going to come across Sinai, up through the wilderness, across to Edom, up to Seir, through Paran, right up the King's Highway, right up the east side of the Dead Sea and cross Jordan, right where Joseph put, uh, Joshua put those 12 stones, right at the same spot where Christ was baptized. He's going to come across the Gilgal. He's going to come down through Jericho, and it's going to fall just like it fell back in Joshua's time and right to the Mount of Olives. And you know what the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 14? And at that Mount of Olives is the exact same spot where he met with Joshua. It said, take the shoes off your feet. The ground you're standing on is holy. And the Bible says he's going to step off that white horse and he's going to step on that Mount of Olives. And right now, that's where the Dome of the Rock is. Right now, the, uh, the, uh, the Muslims have it. Right now, that's the great temple of the rock. But that's the place back in 2 Samuel chapter 24 where David bought the threshing floor. And that's the spot of the temple. And I tell you, when he steps off that horse on the Mount of Olives, the Bible says, half cleaves this way, half close this way. And the Bible says in verse 9, And the Lord shall be the king over all the earth, and that day shall there be one Lord in his name, one. And when he steps off that horse, Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 1 through 4, Zechariah chapter 14, says he's going to go over and he's going to walk through that eastern gate. Oh, when he walks through that eastern gate, brother, he's going to walk in there and he's going to sit down on the throne and he's going to be crowned king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know that eastern gate's walled up right now. You know how it got walled up? The Muslims walled it up. Back in 1543, one of the Turkish Ottoman Turks, Suleiman the Magnificent, had defeated the nation of Israel and they had Jerusalem. Suleiman the Magnificent thought he was God. He thought he was Christ, just like the Antichrist. He knew the prophecy in the Old Testament that someday in Zechariah, in Ezekiel, that God, Christ, was going to go through that eastern gate. And he so fancied himself as God, just like the Antichrist will do. He so wanted to be worshipped and had himself to be called uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, just like the Antichrist, equating himself with God, that he announced on the next day that he was going to walk through that eastern gate, he was going to sit down on the throne, and he was going to show the whole world he was God, just like the Antichrist is going to do in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. The scripture shall not be broken. My Bible tells me that Christ is going to go through that gate. That night old Suleiman went to bed, had a terrible dream, and realized that he walked through the eastern gate with all of his glory. And as soon as he walked through, that God appeared to him in heaven and struck him down and killed him. Scared him enough that he not only went through the eastern gate, but he ordered that the gate be walled up and nobody would go through it. And that gate's been walled up since 1543. You know why? Because it's reserved for somebody else. Now, when he steps off that white horse and touches the Mount of Olives and that old mountains cleave asunder, brother, I'm telling you what, when he walks into that eastern, walks up to that eastern gate, them bricks are going to fall 